be here at CIMC. I, um, I feel I owe a debt of gratitude to CIMC because I usually teach in California. I teach at the Insight Meditation Center in California, in Redwood City, California. And um, I heard about the sandwich retreat from CIMC and begged my teacher at the time to, um, to offer it, but he didn't want to take the time to commit to doing that kind of a retreat, you know, the daily life practice retreat every evening more, the, and the, the weekends around it. And so when I became a teacher, I decided I would offer one. And so I've been offering my own version of a sandwich retreat at uh, the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City now for about the past five or six years. And there's a whole community of practitioners that have really appreciated that. So your community has offered this, uh, this form that is now migrated out into the world. So thank you. Thank you for that. I really appreciate um, CIMC for that. In the, the Buddha's teachings, there's a phrase that is actually used quite a lot, but it's a, it's a phrase that can just disappear into the text. The phrase is yata bhuta and is translated something like as it actually is. <coughs> And this phrase is used all over the place in the suttas. You'll see it. Um, the Buddha's talking about one understands suffering as it actually is. One understands the cause of suffering as it actually is. Or he talks about understanding the eye and sight as it actually is. So I actually uh, looked on Access to Insight tonight to see how many places it was used on just the suttas in Access to Insight, and I found 187 places that that phrase is used. So this, um, this notion of as it actually is, in my understanding, this yata bhuta, things as they are, things as they have come to be, as it actually is, those are various translations of the term yata bhuta. I understand it to be a kind of a meditation instruction from the Buddha that we should explore our experience as it actually is, free from views, opinions, ideas, reactions. And that is not the easiest thing to do. So what I'd like to do tonight is to explore with you um, you know, this fact of yata bhuta, this, this aspect of looking at our experience as it actually is, and why it's so difficult is that we tend to add a lot to our experience. We add, our mind adds things to our experience. And so I'd like to look at some of the things that we add and explore how bringing mindfulness and wisdom to those things that we add can support us to begin to see things as they actually are. So this adding of things, and actually in many places where the Buddha uses this term yata bhuta, he um, 
he expresses that when one doesn't see things as they actually are, one suffers. And so the exploration of seeing things as they actually are is that of letting go of suffering, that of letting go of the things that we add. And so in this exploration of looking at some of the things that we add, I'd like to start with some of the more obvious things and then work kind of inward to some of the more, more and more subtle ways that we add to our experience, things that we add that catch us, that create this struggle, create this dukkha, this suffering. So in, a, um, in one of the Buddha's texts, he kind of almost explicitly talks about the ways that we add to our experience It's a kind of a famous sutta, so you may have heard this story. The the Buddha asks his disciples, asks his followers, so whether somebody has trained in the practice or not, whether one is an ordinary person or one is a trained disciple of the Buddha, One experiences pleasant experience, one experiences unpleasant experience, and one experiences neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience. So so given that, given that whether we're trained or not, we experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience, what's the difference between someone who is an ordinary person, a run-of-the-mill person, and someone who has training? And he goes on to answer his own question, and I'll read this, a bit of this text to you. When the uninstructed worldling is contacted by a painful feeling, one sorrows, grieves, and laments. One weeps, beating one's breast and becomes distraught. One feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, and then were to strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart. So that man would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So what what he's saying here basically is that when we experience something that's unpleasant, we don't leave it simply as unpleasant, just an unpleasant experience. We, as he says, grieve, sorrow, weeps, laments, beating his breast, becoming distraught. Basically, why me? Why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening to me. So when we have an unpleasant experience, there's the unpleasant experience, and then there is the reactivity to that unpleasant experience. (coughs) And what the Buddha says basically is this is two unpleasant experiences combined together. And in my own experience, they are—they multiply the second, the second experience, the mental reactivity added to, in this case, a painful physical feeling. The mental reactivity greatly compounds the, the suffering. And so this is an adding, that we add reactivity to our experience. He goes on to describe the instructed noble disciple. When the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, that one does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, 
does not weep beating one's breast and become distraught. One feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. So this training that the Buddha is offering is a training that helps us to let go of the reactivity that we add to experience. This is the kind of the most obvious way that we add to our experience, the way we don't meet things as they actually are. We don't meet just pleasant as it is. If there's something pleasant, we like it, we want it, we want more of it. Yes, more of that, please. If there's something unpleasant, we don't like it, we want to get rid of it. Again, additional movement of mind that comes with pleasant and unpleasant. With neutral, the additional movement of mind tends to be actually something like non-connecting. We don't We just simply don't recognize a lot of neutral experience. So this movement of reactivity, pleasant, we like it, we want it, unpleasant, we don't like it, we want to get rid of it, this is an addition to our experience. We're not simply meeting the experience as it is. As we explore our experience, we begin to really understand that the pleasant experience or the unpleasant experience is one thing, and that our reaction to that is something else. With the unpleasant experience, as the Buddha described in this sutta, we begin to see how that unpleasant reactivity compounds the suffering. We think, we often think that we don't have much choice in this reactivity. It feels like, sometimes it feels like it's just the way I am, you know? This kind of reactivity, yeah, when that happens to me, I react. That's just the way I am. So we don't um, sometimes recognize that there is some choice in the matter, some choice in this reactivity. And it's actually a process that's happening in our minds around which there can be just a little bit of space when there's an unpleasant experience there if we're mindful if we are aware with mindfulness of that unpleasant experience there can be just a little bit of space and we can actually choose to not act out of reactivity in that situation it can be challenging I mean this is not something that uh, that happens just looking at this once or twice. It's, it's an exploration. And we can begin this exploration by starting to recognize that reactivity is happening. To allow the reactivity, but not act on the reactivity. How does this work? I mean, when I first heard this kind of instruction, I was really new to meditation practice. I got the instruction through reading a book, um, well, don't act on your emotions, your difficult emotions, and anger was the emotion I was really <coughs> working with at the time. Don't act on your anger, just experience it, feel it. And my thinking when I heard that instruction was something like, well, what good is that going to do? You know, if I just pay attention to my anger, won't I just get more angry? So I didn't quite understand how it worked. 
However, I trusted to try it. And what I began to understand as I explored this is that there's a difference between um, bringing attention to the experience of anger, to turning towards that experience. And um, normally when we're reacting to something, there's something in the world we're reacting to, and then there's the reaction. So there's the outer thing that we're reacting to, and then there's the inner reaction. And what, what this exploration of the inner reaction does is it takes our attention out of the thing that we are reacting to. So in my situation, I was angry at a particular person, and what this exploration of the feeling of anger did was take my attention away from the thoughts about that person to the feeling. This is what it feels like to be a human being that feels angry. And I still didn't quite understand how it worked, but I saw for myself over the course of several months just how valuable it was, just how effective it was to take my attention out of the thing, the thing in the world where the, the reactivity to that thing was what was causing the anger, and turn it towards the feeling of anger. I found much more space around the anger, much more ability to navigate my world without acting out of that anger. So this exploration, this turning towards our reactivity, this is the first step to beginning to have some space around that reactivity. And as we get some space around that reactivity, it begins slowly over time. It's a slow process. Slowly over time to... Our mind begins to understand how that reactivity is formed and slowly it begins to re-educate itself around that. It begins to understand how a choice is made around that reactivity. I still really clearly remember in one situation, um, after having observed this anger for many months, uh, I found myself in a situation where I saw a thought arise in my mind and saw the, um, the, a thought arise in my mind about the person that I was angry with and saw the inclination to jump on that thought and think more thoughts in order to get angry at that person. And in seeing that, essentially in that moment, my mind saw the choice that was possible. And the choice that the mind made, actually, I didn't even feel like I made the choice. It wasn't a feeling like I consciously decided, oh, don't think those thoughts. Don't jump on that train and think those thoughts. What happened is that the mind recognized that way lies suffering. That way lies anger that burns inside because I had been feeling that burning by turning towards that feeling of anger. So the mind got an education. The mind got an education that anger is suffering. And when the mind saw itself headed towards that suffering, it just said, not going there. And so this um, observing of our reactivity, willingness to turn (coughs) towards our difficult emotions, the ways that we react, that willingness 
is the beginning of our minds starting to let go and loosen around that reactivity. And sometimes when we reflect on the suffering around the way we react to things, you know, there's suffering that might come when we react if somebody cuts us off off on a freeway. There's suffering that might happen if we lose our jobs. Or there's the suffering that might happen if we have a dear friend that we learn is dying of cancer. And if we start to look at this, you know, we, we see actually, you know, most of us would be pretty happy to, perhaps happy to let go of some kinds of reactivity, you know, let go of the kind of reactivity of somebody cutting us off on the freeway. But the reactivity around a friend dying from cancer, you know, the, the anger, the sense of it shouldn't be like that. That kind of reactivity, you know, we, we, we feel like it proves that we care. And so there can be an almost way that we cling to some of our reactivity because of our relationship to our view, our belief around that reactivity. And we believe that certain kinds of reactivity make us human. So what I'd like to explore is the possibility, actually, and I've seen this in my own practice, that, certainly not all the time, but I've seen times in my practice where I find I can meet a really challenging situation, a situation like, this shouldn't be happening, you know, the situation like, such as a friend dying from cancer, where rather than reacting to that and being angry about that, there can be the heart that doesn't contract, the heart that feels the suffering of that, resonates with the pain of that, but doesn't contract. This is the possibility, and this is actually meeting things as they are. You know, rather than resisting the truth of impermanence, the heart can open and respond to that with kindness, with love, with compassion. So this exploration around reactivity the letting go of that reactivity doesn't take us to a place where we're flat and non-responsive. That's a misunderstanding. It can open us to a place where the heart feels like it's vibrating with the world. Out of love. So this offers the possibility of being responsive to 
to the world rather than reactive to the world. And this is, I think of this as coming into alignment with truth. That rather than reacting to the challenges of unreliability, of impermanence, of suffering, rather than railing against that, that it shouldn't be like this, well, it is like this. Coming into alignment with that truth, meeting that, without resistance, we can respond skillfully. We can meet the pain. I remember one friend who told me of a very deep pain that he had experienced and was kind of reliving in the moment through reflection. And I just kind of was able through just just trying to be there. I didn't want to I didn't want to uh, close down or contract. I just tried to be there with him with his pain. I didn't try to fix it. I didn't try to talk him out of it. Just sitting with him. And there was a feeling on my part of that open-heartedness, that just willingness to meet the pain. And on his part a couple of days later, he said it felt like He actually asked me, were you doing metta? Were you doing loving kindness? Because it felt to him like there was love there. And what I was doing was just trying to keep my heart open to the pain. So that openness, that willingness to just meet, coming into alignment with that reality, things as they are, can be felt as love and have that quality. So that's one way that we add to our experience and the exploration of reactivity can help us to come into alignment with things as they are. Meet things as they are. Another way that we add to our experience is through views, opinions, beliefs. There's so many different kinds of beliefs that operate in our minds. And it's like we're swimming in these beliefs. You know, we don't necessarily recognize that we're believing things or you know, that we have this orientation. It's like they're a filter on our um, our minds, you know, like if I had a pair of blue glasses that I put on and I wore those blue glasses around all the time, at some point it would stop being apparent to me that I was looking through blue glasses. The mind would kind of adjust to that. And it would just be, that's the way it is. Things, that, things look that way. And so similarly with our views, it's like we're just seeing through that perspective and we don't actually recognize that we're seeing with a view in mind. So there are views that we have about our person, you know, kind of personal views, views of um, who we are, what we do, what we're capable of doing, views of what our partner should be, views of what our children should be. And then there are views that 
You know, so those personal views are kind of individual, you know, ones that we each have because of our conditioning. Like one simple, one simple example from my life. Um, um, I always had, I was, I was both very short when I was a child and I had really bad eyes. And those two things together, the teacher always put me in the front row in the classroom. And that created this view in my mind, which years later I finally recognized, well, this is why I always sit in the front row, wherever I am, you know? It's like, that's, it created, I mean, just in a, in, it's, it's a silly little thing in a way, but it created a kind of a belief in myself. I like to sit in the front row. And there was even a story around it. It shows that I'm really interested to sit in the front row. So, you know, it kind of became part of my identity, this sitting in the front row. So this, these, you know, we have many of these that we may not be so aware of. Then there are um, views that are developed based on our life in a particular culture, in our, in a, in our society. You know, things... Things like um, societal views, but that that relate to me. So, for instance, um, um, you know, I have this job, so I deserve this job. You know, just ways that we believe that what we have, that we have a right to, essentially. Whereas it's kind of conditions that come together to create the situation that we have these things. And then societal views that we pick up. Views, views about, well, here's a good one. Um, America's a land of opportunity. Anyone who works hard enough can fulfill their dream. Now this is kind of a view that pervades the dominant culture in this society. And it is you know, kind of believing that view, swimming in that view, not seeing that view, leads to a kind of the denial, in a way, of the privilege of white people in the culture because for a certain class of people in society, perhaps if you work hard enough, you can get what you want. But it is not uniformly the case. So many views that we carry around, that we swim in, that we're unaware of living with. So, you know, some of these views don't necessarily cause us problems. I mean, like the sitting in the front row for me, that you know, didn't particularly cause me problems. But what's, what is the, the issue? What's the problem with views? I mean, some of, the, some of the views that we carry around do cause suffering. And this is uh, an important place to explore our views. But in any case, views of who we are 
and view, views of who other people are are limiting. It's like we've put ourselves in a box. You know, this is who I am. This is the kind of thing I do. This is what I'm capable of. This is what that person is capable of. This is who that person is. You know, when other people do this to us, we don't like it. You know, we, we chafe at it when somebody else says, well, that's just the way you are. We're like, well, no, that's not just the way I am. You don't know me. But we do that to ourselves. We put these boxes around ourselves. We, we, we live in these views ourselves, often without even recognizing it. So these views are not necessarily all leading to suffering, but we need to at least be aware that we are carrying these views around. There's a, a saying in um, one of my favorite suttas. It's in the Sutta Nipata in the chapter of the Eights. This saying is, those attached to views roam the world offending people. This, you know, this attachment to the view, to views. It, the, the Buddha actually points to this as being a source of the conflict in our culture. So anytime we are suffering, there is some kind of view operating. So this is an important thing to recognize. So a, a kind of a um, common view that leads to suffering is something like, it's not supposed to be like this. So underlying that then, too, is often a belief or a meaning. So there's a view, you know, it's not supposed to be like this, and underlying that is some kind of a meaning, something along the lines of perhaps, if it's like this, it means I'm a failure. If it's like this, it means I'm not lovable. If it's like this, it means I didn't try hard enough. If it's like this, it means I'm not as good as someone else. A variety of meanings can be attached to that. So that this, it can be very interesting to start to explore what do I believe when I'm suffering? So there's some kind of suffering happening. What's the belief that's operating? What is the belief? The belief that happens, often the meaning that's associated with the belief, is a place where we identify. It's something we're holding on to. I mean, we even hold on to things like, I'm a failure. If it's like this, I'm a failure. We identify with that. We have habits of identifying with even these negative views, these negative meanings. So it can be kind of interesting to explore in suffering these what beliefs are operating. And then 
as you explore this, as you start to, to recognize, oh, this is, this is the belief, or here's a thought, and how much belief is happening around that thought? So, for example, an example from my own exploration, I had a pretty strong pattern of self-hatred. And there was uh, a lot of meaning attached to that self-hatred. You know, I'm a failure, I'm no good, I'm not lovable, some of those other things I, I just mentioned. And I could see at times that this thought, I mean, that the way it often popped into my mind as a thought was the, the, the words popped into my mind, you're no good. And so that was a thought that would just pop into my mind. And then there would be, as I began to see, as I explored this, a process of belief that kind of began to solidify that thought into place. So there's the thought, you're no good. And then there's a process of believing that thought. They're actually separate things, as I've discovered. I had a, a, a recognition at one point, clear recognition, these thoughts around self-hatred, that they were just thoughts. There was nothing, that they were just these thoughts that were created in the mind, that it was just a phenomenon in the mind. And somehow that insight deeply undercut the belief pattern in those thoughts. And so at this point, I still will from time to time see these thoughts. You're no good. You're a failure. But there is not belief in those thoughts. So you can explore, you know, these you know, this kind of view, there's a thought that comes up and there's the belief in that thought. You can explore for yourself, how much do I believe this? How much do I actually believe this? At times, if you catch a thought arising early enough, the belief process may not have taken hold so tightly. And you may recognize, oh, this is just a thought. I actually don't believe this so much right now. So there's the, the common view of it's not supposed to be like this that can lead to suffering. And an equally, um, a view that equally leads to suffering, at least in my exploration, is it is supposed to be like this. This is right. This is the way it's supposed to be. When I first started exploring my suffering around views, along these lines. I found the suffering really congealed, I mean, my, the experience of suffering really congealed around the, the, it's not supposed to be like this. I'm a failure. I'm no good at this. I'm bad. I'm, I can't succeed. I really felt the suffering in that side of it. So it was clear that there was suffering there. And the view around that is, you know, that it's not supposed to be like this, and because it is like this, I'm a failure. So that's the belief underneath it. So there was suffering there. So I could see this pattern of belief, and I began looking at that pattern of suffering and beliefs and meaning associated with that. 
And at some point I began to see that there was another side to the story. And that was the side of the story that when things were going well, I told myself, this is the way it's supposed to be. I can do this. I'm good at this. In fact, I may be better than anybody else at this. <laughs> that created yet a kind of a flip side identity that I believed was the way it was supposed to be. So again, the belief was operating, the view that this is the way it's supposed to be. That didn't particularly feel like suffering in the moment of that happening. It actually felt good. You know, it's like, yeah, this feels good. This is the way it's supposed to be. But what I began to recognize is that that feeling of this is the way it's supposed to be was a setup. It was setting myself to a standard that if I've attained this, I have to keep this. It has to always be like this. And when it can't always be like this, because things are impermanent, they change, things fall apart, then I crashed into the failure side of things. And actually in this exploration, I saw it was equally, if not more important, to recognize those times when I felt, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is good. This is, this is right. To recognize when I was praising myself, when I was feeling like this is it. To, to acknowledge that. To acknowledge that as a view. As a belief. Not as reality. Not as this is how it has to be. And when I began acknowledging that side of it, it really evened out the whole kind of pattern. So we often, you know, can't just decide to stop believing something. It's not like we can't decide to stop reacting to things. We can't stop our views. We can't decide, I'm not going to have this view anymore. But we can begin to become conscious of our views. We can begin to recognize the beliefs that are operating. So having a curiosity about what these views are, when we're suffering, beginning to explore, what do I think needs to happen? What do I think needs to stop happening? What beliefs are happening here? What beliefs are functioning? Begin to become conscious of your views. That's the first step in maybe not um, letting go of views entirely, but at least to recognize when we have these filters on, to recognize when we are operating out of a perspective so that it's not blind acting out of a view, but consciously recognizing, oh, here's a view that's happening right now. Certain views are skillful to act on in a moment. Other views we may begin to recognize, wow, this one is not so skillful. Maybe I shouldn't act on this one. So that's another way that we add to our experience, this adding, seeing things through views. Again, when we're experiencing things through views, we're not seeing things as they are. A kind of a subtler way of 
adding to our experience. And this is, this is a, a process that our mind functions with, the, the process of recognizing things, of perceiving things, of working with concepts. This is a very normal way that our mind works. You know, that we, uh, like I look out at this room and I see men and women and I see green zabutans and I see walls and I see lights. You know, I see that. But all of those things are concepts. So it happens very quickly in our minds these concepts and we tend to relate to our experience through concept rather than through our direct meeting of experience. So a simple example of this, put your attention in your hand right now. Just feel the experience that is your hand right now. You might feel vibration, or pulsing, or tingling, vibrating, heat or coolness, pressure. Just the feeling, just the experience there. And now, look at your hand and think about it as a hand. And when I do that, at least, there's a shift of the experience. I lose touch with some of that experience that I was just exploring with you. So, you know, hand is a concept. The direct experience is not hand. The direct experience is vibration, is pulsing, is tingling, is pressure, is coolness, is heat. But when we explore, I mean, we, we relate to it as a hand, we, we kind of, there's a little bit of a distance that happens from the actual experience. This kind of thing happens to us a lot. We relate to our experience through a layer of concept. And now that's not necessarily a problem. It's actually a really good short cut for us. I mean, if I had to walk in here and from form and color, actually, every time I walked into a room, figured out, oh, those are people. And that's the floor. You know, oh, and that's the wall. You know, that, it, would, it would take forever to navigate our, our world. So the concepts are really useful. They're a really useful shortcut. But what the, the, what the way we add around concepts is that we believe that we are experiencing the real thing. We believe that when we are experiencing things through concept, we believe we're experiencing reality. That is the way we're adding around concept. We can start to really see how this works and the the problems that it can introduce for us when perception, this process of creating concepts, makes a mistake. 
because this process of perception is very prone to making mistakes. It does a pretty good job. It's a pretty good pattern matching algorithm in there that figures out what is happening out there based on my history. I mean, it's kind of like a memory lookup thing. You know, it's like I look out there and um, I've seen walls before. So, you know, that becomes identified as a wall. And so I relate to it as the concept of a wall. But perception can make mistakes. An example of this, I was in Burma and practicing in a monastery that was pretty close in a village to a, to a village that was right, you know, was right next door. And my room was right next to the monastery wall. And, the, you know, sounds of the village came over the wall, the loudspeakers, the sounds of people doing their things. And, and every evening I was meditating in my room, and every evening at about dusk, I began hearing the squealing sound. And um, to me, the mind heard that sound and identified it as pig. So this is a squealing pig. This is what I identified. And then the, um, the mind went a little further than that to uh, create the idea that this sound of squealing had a distress to it. And so my mind constructed this idea, and I knew this was a construction. I knew this part was a construction, that um, what I was hearing was a pig being butchered, you know, that, that this was the regular every evening butcher shop just across the wall there, and I was hearing that happen. So there was um, compassion that was born in my heart for this pig. And it happened every night, and so I got to practice with this every evening. And then one evening, instead of sitting in my room at that hour of the day, I decided to take a walk. I was doing walking meditation. And I was walking up and down at the monastery, and there were bats flying. You know, they were these, they they fly kind of close, so it's a little startling. And the bats were squealing. And so I recognized in that moment that the squealing sound that I had been hearing, that I had identified as pigs being murdered, were simply bats. <laughs> so this, you know, this whole thing, I mean, that perception clearly had made a mistake here, right? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't any kind of a, a willful mistake. It was just simply I had never heard bats squealing before. You know, the sound of squealing in my experience, matched to pig. So the perception made that m- mistake. And then from that created this whole construct, this whole idea. So we often, in that case, it became clear to me that my reaction of compassion I mean, the whole thing went poof. I mean, the compassion. I mean, it's like there was no need for compassion. <laughs> um, you know, what are we actually reacting to? Much of the time, what we are reacting to is a concept. It's not what's actually happening. So that's something that's very interesting to explore. 
And then the uh, most insidious concept that we live with is the concept of self. And actually, all of the other kinds of ways that we add to our experience are born out of this very fundamental concept, a misperception, actually. And I don't have time to explore all of that notion of that concept, except to say that we can begin to understand how that concept of self is created by exploring all of these other ways that we add. If we explore our reactivity, we begin to understand something about a sense of self involved in that reactivity. We explore our views, our opinions, our beliefs. We begin to understand something about the sense of self that holds that view, that opinion, that belief. From time to time in this exploration, we may see a moment of views falling away. We may see a moment of a sense of self falling away. And then we get an understanding of the, uh, how that is just simply a concept. It's not something that's actually there. It's a very useful concept, actually. And again, it's not necessarily a problem that we function with that concept. The problem is that we believe that concept to be reality. So I'd like to um, come back to the words of the Buddha here at the end of my talk. And um, this text that I'm going to read is another really famous one you've probably heard. And to me, it really expresses this notion of coming to meet things as they are just what's actually happening in the moment without the filter of views, opinions, beliefs, ideas. Again, you know, we can't just go right there. The way to explore this is through to see our reactivity, explore our reactivity, explore our views, our opinions, our beliefs. That helps us to begin to let go of them. So this um, text is from the Bahiya Sutta. And the Buddha um, was approached by this renunciate Bahiya who came many, many miles to ask the Buddha for his teachings. And he had been a renunciate for many years but just hadn't quite heard the teachings of the Buddha. And he came to the Buddha and said, please give me your teachings in brief. He had to ask three times because the Buddha was getting ready to go on alms rounds. But after the third time, this is what the Buddha said. (coughs) Bahiya, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed in reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. 
When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This is the end of suffering. And so I like this exploration. He offers a training in reference to the scene is only the scene. So this is the training. We practice exploring what does it mean to, to see things. Notice our reactivity. Notice our views, our beliefs around seeing. Notice our views, opinions, beliefs around our thoughts. Notice our views, our opinions, our beliefs around what's heard, sensed, cognized. In the scene is only the scene. We can't go right there immediately. But that's the training. He calls it a training. And what I like about this sutta is that he then points out the benefits of this training. That as we begin to meet experience in this way, as it actually is, we see clearly for ourselves there is no you in terms of that. No you there. So that's not that that exploration of the falling away of identity view, that concept of self, comes kind of naturally as we begin to just meet things as they are. It's not something we have to to do. Oh, I have to get rid of myself. I have to figure out how to not feel this sense of self. The Buddha points to just seeing things as they actually are begins to reveal this to us. And this is the end of stress, the end of suffering. So, thank you for your attention. And this is the uh, end part of the talk. And so, those of you who would like to leave, I'm happy to stay for questions, if you'd like to have questions. I know that there's some of you that like to go.